Welcome to PantherCast, the official podcast of TMI Episcopal, where we share stories from our alumni, updates about the school, and help you reconnect and discover what the TMI community is all about. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of TMI's PantherCast podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Gish, Director of Community Relations. Today, I'm pleased to bring you the audio of our most recent Senior Chapel Talks by Annie Masterson, Will Oliver, Colby Gilroy, Eric Lull, and Sam Shee, TMI Class of 2019. Remember, we'd love to hear feedback on the podcast, so email us at panthercast at tmi-sa.org or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Now, enjoy this Senior Chapel Talk by Annie Masterson. This was it. I examined my two options. I was putting my fate in one of these two people's hands. I chose my mom. I knew she would drive faster. I jumped in the car and we raced off. I was all in. This was my moment. As we sped down the highway, I could feel my emotions rising. As we pulled into the neighborhood, I kept my eyes peeled, looking for my opponent. We pulled up to the house and there it was. That gray truck that radiated my defeat. She had beat me. How had this happened? My plan to victory seemed flawless. I walked into the house and there she was, staring me in the face with that annoying grin. She knew she had won. I pulled together all of my strength and whined the only line that could save my dignity. It wasn't a race. This competition between my sister and I became a regular occurrence when I was a child. Every time my parents drove in separate cars, we would split up and begin the fight of our lives to make it home first. The line, it wasn't a race, became my motto growing up as I used it every time I lost. I could never accept the crippling defeat of my sister beating me despite the fact that neither of us had any control over the situation and our parents could not have cared less especially since she was always so eager to rub it in. Thanks, Sid. Now, I would love to say that my overcompetitive habits were only a problem when I was young and immature. However, this is not the case. All throughout middle school, I continuously put way too much pressure on myself to be perfect. For example, my struggle for perfection led me to cry on the mound every single game I pitched in during my middle school softball career. I mean every single game I played. Let's just say I took the term pitching a fit to a whole new level. <laughs> I later found out that the immature middle school boys in my grade would come to the games just to see how many innings I could make it before I broke down in tears. <laughs> I had no control over my emotions, and every time I did something less than perfect, my world came crashing down. I would have countless conversations with my parents, coaches, and teammates, but nothing seemed to help. 
I distinctly remember one game when I walked off the field a mess and there was my dad to give me a hug and calm me down. I then proceeded to utter the four words my father can't stand. I can't do this. He then looked me in the eyes and told me, shut up, grow up, and get over it. My dad had hit his breaking point with my overdramatic emotions, and to this day, this is the phrase he will repeat to me whenever I get frustrated. As I moved on to high school, my growing desire for perfection increased and showed through my competitiveness. My sister was ready for me to stop flipping the foosball table on her whenever I would lose. My coaches quickly became frustrated with my inability to move on from my mistakes in a game and I tried to avoid any kind of competition with my friends because I knew it could jeopardize our relationships. But every once in a while, I would get forced into playing a game, let's say dodgeball, and I would end, <laughs> and I would end up yelling at people I care about because they got me out. Every aspect of my life seemed to revolve around the fact that I viewed defeat as complete failure while everyone else around me seemed to be able to shake off defeat like it never happened. I felt like no matter what happened, I had no control over the way I reacted to my imperfections. I couldn't understand it, and I had no idea how to fix it. Over time, I have come to understand that my competitiveness is not something that needs to be fixed or rejected, but rather embraced. One person and one idea have helped me reach that conclusion. One of the most important people in my entire life was my grandfather. I called him Pops. Pops always had cards with him. The location never mattered, but we always played his favorite game. Sometimes it felt like he knew my cards better than I did. I knew he loved me, but I also knew that nothing was going to get in his way of winning. With his glasses perched at the end of his nose and a smile on his face, he would utterly destroy me. When I think back to how competitive he was, it helps me accept my own competitiveness. Not only do I accept it, but I love it about myself because I loved him so much. I want my own competitiveness to one day look like his, a passion without fear. The idea that helps me embrace my competitiveness is the truth that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. What this means to me is my failures do not define me. I can be at peace knowing that my family, my friends, and God all love me despite my imperfections. As I have learned to embrace my competitiveness and not to allow my frustrations to rule my world, I have come to believe that the root of my intensity lies in passion. Now, being passionate is not a bad thing. How will we ever reach our limits without passion driving us past our fears to new heights? I hope that everyone can pursue a life of passion not limited by fear. This is not easy, and not without crying moments. 
But for me, the passion that underlies my competitiveness is what has allowed me to get where I am today. My grades have benefited greatly, my skills on the field have increased, and I hope that as I move into adulthood, I will continue to be passionate about everything I do and everyone I love. I still find myself constantly caught up in my frustrations about my failures, but I have come to realize that I will always have my friends, my family, and God to embrace me in my imperfections. Thank you. Our second featured talk is by Will Oliver. Before I was born, my mom and dad met Mr. and Mrs. McCoy and became very close friends. The McCoys had two sons, Jake and Burke. And as you all know, my parents had Warren, who I call Toadie and suggest all you all do too, and me. We all grew up together and it seemed as if our dads were always going on hunting trips together or we were at their place in Graham every Labor Day. To this day, they are still some of our closest family friends. In 2017, when Mr. McCoy asked me to go on a mission trip to Malawi, Africa with their church, I immediately said yes, not even knowing where Malawi was. After 20 plus hours of flying and five hours on a bus, we were finally in Malawi. The first thing we did was visit a small church for a prayer service. The service started off by being asked to stand up, introduce ourselves to the church, and state our age and family members with us. So, of course I stood up and said, hello, my name is Will Oliver, I'm 16, and my family's back home in Texas. We continued around the group, and everybody introduced themselves to the church. When it was Mr. McCoy's turn, he stood up and without hesitation said, my name is Jim McCoy, I traveled here from Texas with my wife Elizabeth and our three sons, Jake, Burke, and Will Oliver. For the rest of the trip, I was a McCoy. Anytime we would group up by families or be introduced to someone new, I was one of them. I was a McCoy. My parents have always been my family. I mean, they are my parents. But more importantly, they put me in positions to find that family like I have in the McCoys. Mr. and Mrs. McCoy have always treated me like a son. I share no blood relation with them. I was just another family friend. Yet they became a part of my family, and I was a part of theirs. For as long as I can remember, the McCoys have always felt like a second family. But on that mission trip, I really learned that family is not just those related to you by blood, but also all those who care about you and the community that surrounds you. Now, I know we all have friends that we could call or text at any time, and we know they would be there for anything we needed. They are the people that impact our lives. For me, this isn't just the McCoys, but it's been my TMI family. This community, as well as many, many other people, are what I consider family. There was a day last year when everything that seemed to go wrong could go wrong. It was just one of those days. I'm sure you've had days like this too, especially being a TMI student. As I walked down the baseball field and got ready to go in the batting cages, Coach Eason just looked at me and said, what's wrong? Not many people are able to just look at you and know that something is wrong. Coach Eason is that kind of person. He seemed to know right away that my day hadn't gone as planned and asked how he could help me. 
I'm not sure how he does it, but Coach Easton always seems to know when to ask if I need help, and he continues to always be there for me, even sometimes when I, realize, when I don't realize I need it. Coach tells us every day at baseball practice that we are his family. After seven years of knowing Coach Easton and the countless hours either spent in his classroom or on the baseball field, he is another one of those people that are a part of my family. He has always been there for me, regardless of the situation, and I know that. As I said, not many people care to take the time and notice when those around them are struggling. But I have seen over and over again that those I consider my family are always there to help me through the tough times. Something that not many of you know is that at the end of my sophomore year, I was planning on leaving TMI. I just didn't want to go to school here anymore. I wanted to be able to take an ag class, be an FFA, maybe even work program. These were just some of the things that TMI wasn't able to offer, and I wanted the opportunity to do more of the things that interested me. I was ready for a change. To be honest, the only reason I decided to stay at TMI was because of another group of people I also call my family, specifically the football guys. The guys that I also call my brothers. They have been there through three losing seasons, but we did finally get that one winning record in. And yet they stood there next to me, play after play, down after down. They are the reason I remained at TMI. We all know that losing is tough. It can either tear a team apart or bring it together. And we chose the latter and have come together to form a close brotherhood. My football teammates have put in hours upon hours at practice. We came in for early morning workouts and stayed late to put in extra work. And we supported each other through our hard work. They are my brothers. It's funny when I talk about my brothers because I don't really have much in common with any of them outside of sports. None of them rope or hunt or know how to drive a trailer. The one binding thing we do have in common and that has brought us to where we, where we are today is that we play football together. We enjoy messing around with each other and we love being a team. This group of guys has stayed with me and we have stuck together throughout all of our high school years. We eventually found things we all enjoyed doing like going to Goodwill to buy swords, hanging out in the locker room or grilling sausage on the quad. We've stuck through some challenging and tough times and we create a close brotherhood that not many people understand or are lucky enough to experience. Now, of course not everyone will be a part of your family. I've had people I thought were my family walk out on me. I've had people I have to hang out with because they were friends with someone that I considered part of my family. People come and go in our lives and there will always be a reason. Losing family, whether blood relative or not, is something that we have to learn to live and cope with. Whether it's a death or an argument or just losing touch with someone, our families change. At some point, the people that I consider part of my family will leave and move on, like when we graduate and we will lose touch. While that is hard to accept, I know that at least for a while, I had that person in my life for a period of time. They're friends of mine from Fort Worth, whom I consider family, yet we haven't spoken to each other in several years. 
There are people in this very room who I once talked to, yet haven't spoken to in a long time. There are people that graduated last year that I haven't spoken to since the beginning of my senior year, yet I consider them family. All of them I consider a part of my family. Throughout my 18 years of life, I've been very lucky to be surrounded by people who make me laugh and are there for me no matter what. Those people have become my family. I know that anywhere I go, no matter where I end up, someone new will come into my life and become a part of my family. I'm so blessed to have this opportunity to share with you a little bit about what family means to me and to remind you that it's not just those related to you by blood who you should consider family. This community as TMI has given me the opportunity to have many different people be a part of my family. If I think back to my sophomore year, when I had planned on leaving TMI, what I now know is that would have been a horrible mistake. I'm sure I wouldn't have found or had the opportunity to be part of a community that supports each other like my family here at TMI does. My extended family is not a perfect family, but no family is. It's a family that I may not have everything in common with, but are there for me no matter what. Whether they needed me or I needed them, we loved each other like family. We all, have greater, we all have families greater than those bound to us by blood. Families will make you laugh. They will be there to celebrate your accomplishments, pick you up when you fall, and if you're lucky enough, maybe even give you a concussion or two. I grew up with parents that treat their, families, that treat their friends like family. I learned early on that family is not just my parents and Toadie, but everyone else close to me who cares about me. I've been able to find my family. Make sure you find yours. Thank you. Our third featured talk is by Colby Gilroy. that I am guided by forces beyond my comprehension into situations beyond my control. For the most part, I am a passenger on this lively cruise ship called inevitability. But this only comes to me in hindsight. In the moment, I appear to act mostly off of instinct. All of my speeches, all of my gusto and remarks, however, come from a place deep within me that I cannot reach. I believe that this is a spiritual place. I do my best to be close to God and my Catholic faith, and sometimes I'm rewarded for my spiritual life. And I like to think that this story I'm about to tell you is one of those rewards. Just like the reward of being a student at TMI, Gore does more. <laughs> my story begins on March 12, 2017. I was working at IHOP. Yes, I once made a fortune slinging pancakes and smooth-talking the elderly. Yes, I still know the IHOP birthday song by heart. I vividly remember grown men shrinking down in their seats as they are surrounded by a gaggle of chain smokers 
and a certain 17-year-old who sing about how happy his birthday is and how much they wish it was their birthday. And this brings me an immeasurable amount of joy. It is with this mindset that we enter the IHOP at the rim. That day we had seven birthdays, so things were already going great. <laughs> Financially, I was not doing so hot, as I'd only made $50, so I was waiting in the server stand, watching my tables like a peregrine falcon would watch a field, waiting for a turtle or some other soft-fleshed animal to rear its delicious head, so I could dive down and crush it against the rock of my table-waiting skills. I would leave to retrieve food or warm syrup for our customers, which I'm pretty sure was God's punishment on the human race for creating SoundCloud, but I'm getting beside myself. <laughs> Kathy, one of my coworkers, gets to the stand with a new guy. We'll call him Mickey in tow. But Mickey was pestering her about gambling, so she couldn't get her order in. Now, I was no stranger to gambling. One of my best friends, nicknamed Rada, used to have a gambling addiction. Rada and I would be up late at night gambling, and he would make bank. In a night, he could make 5K if he was lucky, but by that same principle, he could lose it all. So I knew that gambling was a risky business. Now, Mickey had $10 that was burning a hole in his pocket. He had only made 30 bucks at that point in the day, which was around 10 a.m., so the sun was already shining through my breakfasty cage. We know that there was no way he could make a bill that day. A bill is $100 to country folk out there. <laughs> he was hoping to win some money to make the day worth his while. Kathy, however, was having none of it. Being an older woman, she knew that gambling was a jealous sport. Plus, she worked hard for her money. Why would she risk it getting into the hands of some curly-haired, rat-faced bum? I, on the other hand, am a man of faith, and I could see the signs leading to his destruction. I had a moment of clarity. Perhaps God had put me here to take the money off this hapless fool. Mickey, I said to him, I'll take you up on this bet. I, cool. What you thinking? Rock, paper, scissors? No, no. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. <laughs> I, lit. And we shook on it. Kathy's husband, Brian, refereed this battle of wits. We placed the money on the counter, $10 each, and Brian placed his leathery hands over ours, telling us the rules. Best of three, rock, paper, scissors, shoot. You got it? We both nodded in agreement. Then I threw rock, he threw scissors. He threw paper, I threw rock. I threw paper, he threw rock. In an instant, it was over. I took the money and ran back to the kitchen before anyone could take it from me. The rest of my day was like any other at IHOP. Some people would leave without tipping, order burgers dry, causing me to get into an argument with the cooks, and the servers would get into fights about petty stuff, etc. But the one who was being the pettiest of all was Mickey, who felt that my possession of his money was somehow illegitimate. Obviously, I lived in a reality contrary to his own. So we played double or nothing, and I won, again. <laughs> this only made him act like a petulant child. It was the end of the day, and I was busy rolling silverware while listening to the Left Hand Path album by Entombed. Out of nowhere, Mickey taps me on the shoulder and tells me, double or nothing. What was a guy to do? I was already more than ahead, so I should have quit. Instead, I said a prayer and called Brian over to officiate, 
we were gambling double or nothing rock, paper, scissors in an IHOP. The cold, hard cash was placed on the metal cooktops in the kitchen, $40 each. Brian gave me a nervous glance, but I had God on my side, as we all know. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me. So I ignored his pleas to cancel the match. Instead, I readied my hands to reach out and grab victory by the throat. I threw scissors, he threw paper. Again, I threw scissors, he threw paper. Mickey slammed his head into the counter and moaned. Not only had he failed to make his bill, but it appeared he had failed to make any money at all. As I scooped up the $40, he begged and he pleaded with me, again, double or nothing. But unlike Rada, ruined by his gambling addiction, I quit while I was ahead. It was this very story that I relayed to the Criollos of my Latin American history class on the day of the football senior night. I don't exactly remember the context for telling this tale, but who needs context when bragging about their feats, am I right, fellas? Yeah. <laughs> it's important to know that many of the students in this class are on the football team. I promised them I would go to the game, and I'm sure most of you have figured out by now that I'm not one for high school social events. In fact, I've been making an effort to attend more things, just that I can say I have later on down the line. So my, friend, or, yeah, so my kids don't think I didn't have a life. Enter Santiago Martinez. He's a good pal of mine and the secret main character of this story. He paid close attention to what I said in class and went to the football game with me. Now, I had arrived at the football game a good 40 minutes early for the senior night nonsense. Again, I need to be able to say I did these things so I don't seem like a loser when I'm in my 40s. So I sat in the integrated section of the stands where the core and the regular kids are allowed to sit together. While I was sitting with some freshmen, a kind lady came to me and asked if I wanted to be in a raffle for the punt, pass, and kick. I had a moment of clarity here. For some reason, I realized that if I entered this, I would win it. And so I did. And immediately afterwards, I yelled out embarrassingly loud, Hey, Arden, you should enter this raffle. <laughs> and she flashed a smile, much like the one she's doing right now that expresses both sisterly love and disdain at the same time. <laughs> Feeling satisfied with myself, I ascended the stairs to the press box. The last time I had been this close to the press box was my last JV soccer game, when the team carried me, feet first over their heads up the stairs, and begged the people inside to let me in, so that I might give my final speech with the voice that commands the field. Unfortunately, enthusiasm is not enough and they were turned away, and I was placed back on the ground. Maybe this time, without an entourage, I might be granted passage. Two knocks on the door later, and I was in. <laughs> I found a nice chair right next to Father Bostain, and we had a very pleasant conversation. At this point, the game had begun. For those curious, we were playing the Indians. The massacre that occurred before my eyes was so brutal that I had to document it on Snapchat. 
on the Latin American group chat titled, The Criollo Escoes, <laughs> which refers to an event in Mexican history in which the peninsular Spaniards squeezed the Criollos, forcing them out of their government positions. It was around this time that the nice lady from the raffle had returned. She was pulling out names, and lo and behold, both my sister and I were chosen to pass, punt, and kick the ball. It was at this time that I texted my sister to tell her the exciting news, but she wasn't as receptive to it as I was. In fact, she had no desire to either pass, punt, or kick the ball. <laughs> she didn't even write her own name down. This little tidbit of information told me that this was preordained. Just as I was destined to win money gambling, I was destined to win money doing the pass, punt, and kick. At halftime, we the competitors had gathered by the frost bank table. There were two problems. First of all, I was wearing flip-flops. Obviously, I was blinded by my own hubris at the time. I figured, pot off of JV soccer, vivar. I could kick a football barefoot further than anyone else. Second, there were not enough people for this contest. We were supposed to have five boys and five girls. Only three boys and four girls showed up. So my sister and I went out to recruit more people to compete in this contest. I managed to snag Santiago and Stowe for the boys. In the time between going out to look and coming back, one of the boys who was supposed to play had arrived, meaning that Santiago and Stowe had to settle it among themselves who would compete in the contest. They decided to play rock, paper, scissors, and Santiago won by using scissors twice in a row. <laughs> Needless to say, Santiago won the punt, pass, and kick, earning him a plump bill. Although I was a bit miffed about losing, I began to put the pieces together in my head on all the events leading up to Santiago's triumph. I would still be thinking about it as I left the game and ran into Colonel Bueno. He asked me who had won the punt, pass, and kick, and when I told him that Santi won, he became very angry with that. I hate that, he said to me. Hate what? Santi. <laughs> the shortening of Santiago. You know, that's my name too, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Santi means saint, and Iago means James. So whenever you say Santiago, you're saying Saint James in Spanish. And that was my final moment of clarity. Everything I had done was so that Santiago could earn the $100. From gambling with my friends, working at IHOP, taking Latin American history, to wearing flip-flops to a football game, God had put me on this path. I have no idea why God ordained Santiago to have $100 and not me. But it's important to remember that God said, your ways are not my own. So there's no point in questioning it. What could one do with $100, you may ask? Well, at the Dollar Tree, you can buy one can of Goofy String for $1. So, theoretically, Santiago could buy 100 cans of Goofy String. And without much goofy string, you could bury someone in so much of it that they would look like a slimy bush on Halloween. So the fact that God allowed me to see his plan in motion on something so insignificant as this is a reward in itself. So I'm thankful that by divine mercy, I'm able to go to school here. And I hope that you are thankful as well. 
For I know that from what I have learned here, the friends I have made and the trouble I have caused has all been for some purpose yet unknown to me. And I can only pray that for whatever moment I was put on this earth to participate in, I have the eyes to recognize it. Thank you. Our fourth featured talk is by Eric Lowell. It's a typical school night, and I vaguely hear the door crack open behind me. Peering through, my dad, half asleep, mutters, Eric, it's 2.30 in the morning. You need to go to sleep. This project isn't that important. After I give the typical, I'm almost done, Dad. Five more minutes. I hear the words that have defined my life for as long as I could remember. Eric, you're way too hard on yourself. Up to this point, I'd like to view life as a competition, a power struggle, if you will, in which every thought, action, talent, or performance I undertook was graded on a cosmic scale. This competitive mindset worked fairly well for me growing up. More often than not, I was able to perform at a level that would usually outpace my competitors and leave me in good standing. Except being first or second or third never was good enough. There was always something missing. In truth, I am my biggest competitor. I am too hard on myself. From my schoolwork to my extracurricular performance, from my physical appearance to my social awareness, I feel the need to be perfect. However, my desire for perfection has always been met by an equally powerful force, my fear of failure. My fear of failure is crippling. It consumes me, it paralyzes me, and it prevents me from achieving the things I know I'm fully capable of accomplishing. These forces create a warlike environment in my head in which I am constantly fighting between my irrationally high expectations for myself and the numbing fear that I will not achieve them. One of the ways I balance these forces is by setting clear goals that someone with a similar skill set would be able to attain. So naturally, when I set my goals for my sophomore year, it was nothing out of the ordinary. I went into my sophomore year with three major goals. However, it seemed that no matter how hard I worked towards these goals, I cannot achieve them. I would work tirelessly in pursuit of some sense of achievement, something I could be proud of. But the toxic, competitive mentality I had developed always left my chest feeling empty, as if I failed at everything I attempted. This toxicity spawned a complete character transformation and in turn dramatically dropped the standard for which I held for myself. I became entirely obsessed with materialistic goals and neglected anything that wasn't adding to my personal stash of worldly achievements. Slowly but surely, I isolated myself. I frequently missed hangouts, group meals, and family events for work, and with this overwhelming pressure crept an icy feeling of complete and total loneliness. But these feelings didn't make sense to me. I had finally begun to achieve my goals, so why did I feel so awful? My stash was full, but I had never felt so empty in my life. I spent months desperately trying to fill this void, eventually becoming so exhausted that my life felt like a daze. Over the course of the following summer, I reflected on the past year and decided how I could try and alleviate any of the pain that had enveloped my life. I decided to, during a work break one day, tell my mom why I had been tired for the last nine months. This was the hardest thing I have ever done, as I had begun 
to tear down the emotional block I had been cowering behind for majority of the previous year. My mom told me to stop comparing my success in life to the success of those around me and that I should strive to be the best version of myself, not anyone else. The next week, I went off to Camp Capers, a Christian summer camp located in Waring, Texas. I had been attending Camp Capers since the third grade, and while it was an awesome place to be, I had struggled to fully embrace the camp for its religious capabilities. The first day for teaching, I sat down in a large concrete floored building and waited for the boring part of the day to be over. I sat down and began to zone out when the words, do you want to change your life, snapped me out of my days. I looked up and saw a small woman in her mid-thirties who went by the name of Cookie. She surveyed the audience and proceeded to hold up a dirty shipping pallet. Next, she held up the same type of shipping pallet, except this pallet had been transformed into a beautiful flower planter. Holding the objects side by side, Cookie explained that as we wander further and further from our true selves in pursuit of worldly desires, we solely ourselves, becoming more and more like the dirty pallet. Then, looking at the planter, she explained that if we choose to live our lives to a single idea, we have the opportunity to seize our full potential, to transform into something much greater than any worldly desire has to offer. This idea is love. When I was at my lowest, when I couldn't find happiness or meaning or success in my life, it was because I wasn't doing anything out of love. I was so enveloped in achieving perfection in everything I did that I lost sight of why I had chosen these goals. I had fallen out of love with the process of perfection. I want you to think of love as a journey. This journey starts from within. Self-love is realizing that you have meaning, that you are a miracle who has the potential to change the world with just your heart. The next step is to spread your love in any and every way you find possible. Spreading love is as simple as buying your friends breakfast, offering a compliment, or lending a helping hand, and luckily enough, it is feasible every single day. See, the problem with our world is that our society scorns authenticity. It teaches us to hide our emotions and tells us that love is a vulnerability. To counter this idea, I would like to quote my favorite artist, Mac Miller. Mac once said, I think a lot of times people just want to be cool and that to be in love is not cool, but I think it's the coolest. I think love is the coolest thing that there is. See, TMI, being cool isn't about how many Instagram followers you have or the number of trophies in your case. Being cool is as simple as spreading love and putting others ahead of yourself. Lastly, I would like to leave you with the three rules that I live my life by in my quest to fully live into love. These rules are, one, love yourself. Two, love others and the world around you. Three, and most importantly, live for love. Thank you. And now, please enjoy our final chapel talk for today by Sam Shee. Until today, when I think of that early winter night and that rattling minivan, I still remember the few faces huddled together in the narrow carriage. A couple, two young lovers, a young boy, and his mother. It was three years ago, a drizzly night in a remote suburb of Quanming, 
my hometown in southwestern China. I finished my last sip of juice and walked out of the hotel where my cousin just held his wedding. Since my parents were both at work, I had to come alone to this wedding in the remote area to represent my family. I'm sorry I don't have a better car to take you back, my cousin said. He arranged a minivan to take me and some of the guests home. I didn't know when the light rain has turned into sleet, hitting heavily on a shabby car in front of me, rattling unpleasantly. The driver was someone I didn't know. I could barely see his face under the dim streetlight, although I could clearly smell the stink of alcohol all over his body. Don't worry, I promised to get them home safely. The driver poked his head out and promised my cousin, puffing fumes of alcohol. Seven people got into the minivan, one after the other, and sat down, carefully keeping a strange silence. No one said anything unworthy or unlucky on this red letter day, except for the boy clamoring for sweets. Should I ask the driver to stop and let me out? It's definitely not a great idea to be in a car driven by a drunk man. I hesitated even before the car got on the expressway. The seeds of doubt and worry soon took root in my mind. These thoughts, however, remained buried down deep without evoking me to take any actions. Car accidents don't happen every day anyway. Street lights have been left behind, getting dimmer in the night of rain and hail. The minivan started turning around on the S-shaped mountain road. It started to sway and tremble heavily as cars from the other side passed by from time to time with a glare of lights on our faces. After several heavy waggles, anxiety and fear besieged us. No one in the car broke the silence except for the strange noise made by the minivan. No one uttered any doubt about the security could get back to the city. There was no need to worry too much, and there's no reason to stop on such a rainy night. In the heavy rain, I suddenly started to hear a sound like fish puffing in water. I looked around. It was the sound of the The couple for sure have also noticed that louder, while the van itself is waggling more heavily. I could see their faces with the same fear, although they were trying to hide it. It's not a big deal. There's no need to cause any more trouble. The boy and his young mother sat next to the driver, a very unsafe position. The mother may or may not have noticed this. She clasped the boy to her bosom. The driver, however, Looks on the outskirts of the city, the car finally burst out of control and plunged into a ditch. The accident that everyone expected finally happened. Luckily, there were no casualties. Years later, when I thought of that early winter night and the broken down minivan with all the desperate faces huddled together in it, I always wondered, why did none of us try to stop this farce this whole time? Car accidents do not happen all the time, especially for drunk driving. Thus, the driver subconsciously believed he could drive us back safely even when he was drunk, and he took the chance to do so. On the other hand, me and other passengers know that drunk driving is high risk. However, we were eager to get back on such a rainy night. 
So the danger of drunk driving was subconsciously underestimated by us while being in the dilemma of choosing the only possible transportation or caring more about a low probability danger. Such optimism bias is common in our lives. We sometimes get excited when we find out we did well on a test that we didn't actually prepare for. We get excited because we achieved our goals without wasting time following the normal procedures. As a result, we'll probably fall into the same situation of not preparing for the test without getting worried since subconsciously we believe we might still do well without preparation. Worse, we might simply choose not to prepare for the test without being worried since we believe we could still receive a good score. We subconsciously make such decisions because we have a mindset of depending on flukes, believing that we could simply follow our wills without being responsible for the actual outcomes of our own actions. By giving ourselves auto-suggestions of over-optimistic thoughts, we become more and more relied on uncertain chances, ignoring the fact that no one can always be lucky. We Chinese have a saying, if a man plants a melon, he will reap melon. If he sows beans, he will reap beans. And this is true for everyone's life. No matter, what no matter what actions you take, you will be responsible for the consequences. In our lives, our conduct is always related to people around us. Therefore, taking our decisions deliberately is not only essential for ourselves, but also important for others. By being responsible for our own actions, we're also keeping possible dangers and unforeseen accidents from people around us especially for those who we love and care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to TMI's PantherCast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave us a review on iTunes or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. We'd love to hear your feedback and show ideas, so leave us a comment, email, or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter using at TMI Episcopal. For more news, ways to connect, and to learn about upcoming events on campus, visit our website at www.tmi-sa.org.